Alright guys, Abel here and in this episode I would like to talk about training volume again and namely I would like to talk about the recent study that came out of Brad Schoenfeld's lab which compared low volume with moderate volume to extremely high volume training protocols for their effectiveness for hypertrophy and I want to do this because A I think it's an interesting piece of research that is worth talking about and B I have taken my stand lately by encouraging people to at least give lower volume protocols a go and talking about why if you are currently struggling on 15 to 20 set per muscle group per week protocols then you could try chilling out a little bit and do a 9 to 12 sets per week protocol instead and see if you can gradually progress. And now here is the study from the lab of Dr. Brad Schoenfeld, which suggests that not only could 15 to 20 sets be not too much, but that you could even potentially benefit from doing twice as much volume. So the question is, how does someone like me or anybody who has advocated lower volumes sleep at night after something like this comes out? So... This is what I want to discuss in this episode, and so let's talk about this and see if we get somewhere. So in case you don't know the details, Dr. Schoenfeld's research group put people on a three-day-a-week full-body protocol, and each training session consisted of seven different exercises, which were the chest press, the shoulder press, the leg pull-down, the row, the squat, the leg press, the leg extension, and they did these exercises for one, three, or five sets each per session. Each set was 8 to 12 reps and supposedly at least to failure. The weight was increased each session to facilitate progressive overload. And the weight was adjusted in each set to keep them in the 8 to 12 rep range. And when we look at the total volumes that were performed per muscle group here, then here is how it breaks down. So when I say one set versus three sets versus five sets, it will mean one set per exercise per session or three sets per exercise per session, etc. So one set in this case of the biceps means six total weekly sets since they had two exercises for the biceps. So two times one times three is six. And in the case of the quads, one set means nine weekly sets since they had three different quad movements. So in the case of the biceps, we are comparing six sets to 18 sets to 30 sets. And in the case of the quads, we are comparing nine sets to 27 sets to 45 sets. So after putting people in these different groups and putting them through these protocols, they measured thickness improvements in the limbs. So they measured bicep and tricep thickness and their thickness in the thighs. And after taking the measurements, there was a pretty considerable trend towards more muscle growth in the group that was doing higher volumes. So the results were as follows. Bicep growth was 1.6% in the one set group versus 4.7% in the three set group versus 6.9% in the five set group. And the quads grew 5% as opposed to 7.9% as opposed to 13.7%. So, you know, these are very meaningful changes. So 6.9% growth as opposed to 1.6% growth, that is definitely something. Sure, the increase in growth rate is not proportional to the amount of volume increase. So in this case, we talk about a five-fold increase in volume for not as much hypertrophy. 
But I mean, if you're highly ambitious about something, then I think it's likely that you would take that kind of an imbalance between effort and results. Like if someone told me that, hey, Abel, you can do 26 sets of work to failure next year and gain 10 pounds of muscle, or you can do eight sets of work with submax effort, not really break a sweat and gain five pounds of muscle, I would probably take the former. Now, a couple of interesting things to note. First of all, again, uh, keep in mind that these were trained guys. So the participants of this study were doing resistance training before this for a few years. So it's important to start looking at the results with some hypothesis in mind. You know, if I was looking at three groups of trainees who had been in the gym for three, four years already, then I would predict that these people will need at least a meaningful amount of volume to grow. So something like six sets at minimum. And then it's likely that at least in the short term, there will be improvements in muscle growth, at least up to the high teens in volume. So 16, 20, maybe 20 sets or so. So in this particular study, I would have expected, for example, that on average, the low volume group, if we're looking at volumes of six to nine sets, will have decent growth then the 18 to 20 something groups will have a bit faster growth. And I would have expected that the 30 and especially the 40 sets plus groups will not have any better results. In fact, they will have considerably worse results than the quote unquote moderate volume group. And looking at the methods of the study, I would have expected this even more so. And I would also note that I wouldn't have been surprised much at all if the group doing quote unquote moderate volumes and doing 20 something sets also grew worse than the low volume group. Because in real life, I see quite a few people spinning their wheels endlessly on these volume numbers. And while in this study, 27 sets of quad work was considered to be moderate volume in the real world, make no mistake, that's a very high training volume for most people. But first, with that base hypothesis in mind, let's look at a few details about the study. First of all, something that was very interesting is their volume amounts and rates of growth for the biceps. So their exercises for the biceps were rows and lat pulldowns, which I would consider pretty poor exercises for the biceps. You know, if I was to count my own volume, I would probably consider each of these as half a set for biceps. It's not because they are compound movements, because I would count, for example, an underhand or neutral grip chin up as a legitimate set for biceps, but an overhand pull down or a row puts the bicep in a pretty compromised position to contract optimally. So I think when we look at the volume amounts performed for these movements in this study, the bicep volume numbers should pretty much be cut in half to get a more meaningful model to what people are doing in real life training. So in other words, when I look at the one group having performed one set of these movements three days a week, as opposed to three and five sets of these movements three days a week, respectively, to me, it's not really a comparison of six sets versus 18 sets versus 30 sets of legit bicep work, but more like three sets as opposed to nine sets, as opposed to 15 sets of legit bicep work a week. So in this case, to me, it's not so surprising that the 15 sets of bicep work was much better than three sets of bicep work. In fact, I wouldn't have been surprised to see if the low volume group in this case didn't grow at all, because I would expect that the average reasonably well-trained guy who has been hitting it pretty hard for three, four years, probably worked his biceps a fair amount already, is not going to grow from three sets worth of bicep work. Now, I should say I'm not trying to claim this as a fact that six sets of bicep work from rows and pull downs is objectively, quantitatively worth three sets of actual bicep work. 
But if you think about the impact that a set of preacher curls have on your biceps, for example, as opposed to a set of underhand pulldowns, it's a very different magnitude of stimulus. So I think one thing that is important to note here before we get carried away with our focus on the high volume stuff is that a trained guy, it seems at least, can in fact grow from very low volumes. And in fact, from lower volumes than I would have thought, for example. So that's something to keep in mind. Now for the quads, it's a bit more interesting because the low volume group did a protocol which I would consider to be a very legitimate leg workout with a set of squat, a set of leg press, and a set of leg extension, which at first seems very little, but if you're going to do three different quad movements in a single workout, which is not something I would typically recommend, then one or two sets per exercise is a pretty good way to go about it. And, you know, if you repeat this three times a week, that's nine hard sets, which is a pretty decent weekly stimulus for the quads. Now, again, the other two groups did three or five times this. So would I expect 27 sets of quad work to be better than nine sets? Barring a few select individuals with spot-on recovery and very high volume tolerance, no. For an eight-week study, I would expect maybe 15 to 20 sets to be better than nine sets, but not 27. 45 sets to be better than nine sets for eight weeks, I would never expect it to be better. From about week two, I would expect participants to start running into recovery problems. By week three, I would expect them to be fairly overreached. And then after week four or so, I would expect them to just gradually get worse. But the results show that not only did the 27 and especially the 45 set group not hit the wall hard after three weeks, but they actually way outgrew the nine set group with numbers like 5% as opposed to 7.9% as opposed to 14%, which kind of makes me scratch my head, especially so when I look at the design of these workouts. For one, they were training to failure, which most likely failure in this case meant to performance failure, i.e. when they could no longer do another rep with good form. I highly doubt that it would have been true concentric failure because then there is absolutely no way they could have survived these volumes. But at any rate, we can assume that they were squatting with a very high intensity of effort and they were using 90 second rest periods between sets. And as I recall, they adjusted the load between sets. Now, if you're reasonably well trained, you can probably squat some meaningful weight already for 8 to 12 reps. And doing 8 to 12 reps of reasonably heavy squats is a pretty crushing experience. Doing 5 sets of squats to failure, or at least 1 rep shy of failure, is a grueling training effort. You know, if you actually want that to be fairly high quality work, you'll probably rest a good 3 to 5 minutes between those sets. Now, imagine that you do 8 squats with something that is close to your true 8RM, and then you need to do another set after 90 seconds. I mean, you will probably have to reduce the weight quite a bit. You know, if you wanted to stay within that rep range and you had enough time to rest, so maybe three to five minutes or so, you might only have to reduce the weight by five to 10%. If you only have 90 seconds to rest, you probably have to reduce the weight by 10 to 50, maybe even 20%. So you do that, and then you have a third set and a fourth set and a fifth set. Probably by the time you get to the fifth set, you will have reduced the weight by something like 40%. So you might be only squatting with your 30 to 40 RM for sets of 8 to 12. That is the prototypical case of what most of us in the field would call junk volume. 
you feel like you're working hard, you are crushed, but you're just hammering your muscles more and more with weights that are actually way below your general capabilities. But now that's the only thing you can do because of acute fatigue, both cardiovascular, muscular, and neural. But the workout is not over yet because now you're going over to the leg press machine where after the squat workout, I would already expect that you will start with some pretty junk weight for the first set onwards. You know, maybe otherwise you could do eight reps with 400 pounds. Now you might be only able to do eight reps with 200 pounds and then five sets of that. So where will you end up? You will do 100 pound leg presses for eight to 12 reps. But the workout is still not over because you have to do five sets of leg extensions too. So pretty much what happens here is that you have one, maybe two high quality sets in the beginning of the workout. And after that, you're only adding a shit ton of fatigue on top of that. So by the end of it, it's this is more like a CrossFit workout or something, which is kind of resistance training, kind of cardio. So it's kind of non-specific and is definitely a lot of low quality training stimulus. You know, Last week, I had a conversation with Eric Helms about this, and I said that if someone proposed to do a protocol like this, not only would I not expect them to make great gains, but I would actually expect them to atrophy. And at the time, I couldn't really put it into words why I thought that. But now, I realized that the reason why I would actually expect the average intermediate trainee to atrophy from a protocol like this is not overtraining or chronic overreaching. It's actually, in a practical sense, undertraining. Because if you perform a large percentage of your workload in an acutely fatigued state, thereby forcing yourself into doing low-quality work chronically, then basically, even though you're working crazy hard, you're actually, on a local muscular level, understimulating your muscles because you're just adding fatigue instead of a meaningful stimulus. But again, not only did they not atrophy, but they made great gains. And they even got stronger, and the study mentioned that they increased the weight between sessions to facilitate progressive overload. Which again, kind of makes me scratch my head, because, you know, load progression, we've been discussing this for a while, whether load progression is in and of itself a driver of growth, or the fact that you could increase the load from one session to the next is just an indication that you did something right in the previous session. In this case, whatever we suspect is the role of load progression, the fact that they could increase the weight between sessions makes me kind of baffled. Because if increasing the load is the driver, then how the hell are you able to increase the load and keep repeating these insane volumes if you supposedly train to failure? Or if the ability to increase load from session to session is just an indication that you did something right in the previous session, well, then we just go back to what we were discussing so far. I mean, what did you do right in your previous sessions in this case? So it's tough for me to at least at first glance, find a reasonable explanation for the results of the study in light of what the setup and the methods were. And so here, let's get into discussing how we could explain the results that they got. So one obvious potential explanation is that volume is just a much, much stronger driver of hypertrophy than we had thought previously. And while we've always known that volume is a key driver, possibly the main driver of muscle growth, we always had a number of reservations that volume is the key as long as you have high quality workouts, as long as you lift weights that are at least close to the limits of your current abilities. But it could be that we were actually just wrong about all of those things. And as long as you just hammer your tissues with a ton of tension, all of those things become irrelevant eventually. That's one explanation, which we can't exclude. 
The other explanation is that all of this was just by random chance and that these numbers would never replicate if we did similar studies. So maybe they just picked a group of guys who had very unique physiologies in that they responded well to such extreme amounts of training volume, which is probably unlikely. The results were significant enough that it's probably not the case. Another hypothesis, which a number of people have addressed, is that the great changes were mainly due to temporary swelling and edema. I think this objection was dispelled well enough, and it's perhaps conceivable that the repeated bout effect would over time protect against swelling. Nevertheless, when being exposed to an enormous amount of volume like this, it is perhaps conceivable that the swelling would actually persist for longer. And if all the groups rested for, say, two weeks after the study, then all the differences would go away. In fact, maybe the low to moderate volume groups would retain more of their size. It could also be that there are a lot of things behind the scenes which we don't see that enable people to actually benefit from crazy high volumes. One such thing could be, which I'm almost certainly sure of, is that the participants were not actually training to failure, but were more so just pushed to the point when they could just complete the reps with a reasonable amount of effort. There's also a lot more minor things that we don't know here, like how deep did they go on squats? What was the range of motion of the leg press? You know, if they trained with a relatively subpar range of motion and not really to failure with the subpar weights that they probably had to use, then their 45 sets could actually be the practical equivalent of 20-something sets that a serious trainee would do in real life with good form, adequate rest periods, and meaningful weights. Alternatively, an explanation which is right in line with what the author's takeaway is, is that while this level of training volume is not sustainable in the long run, there might be a benefit to occasionally bumping up your volume significantly to elicit better gains, which I actually think is a fairly reasonable conclusion and is perhaps worth discussing a bit further. So the first thing I want everyone listening to this to understand is that an eight-week-long study can never tell you how your general training should look like. So who knows how the results would have ended up looking like for 16 weeks or 32 weeks. I would guess, for example, even in light of these results, and I don't think that the authors would disagree, that the very high volume group would end up stagnating over time and perhaps even regress. I would even expect some of the quote-unquote moderate volume group doing 27 sets of quad work a week to stagnate and burn out after some time. On the other hand, I would expect if this study ran for six months, let's say, that the low volume group who did nine sets of quad work a week, on average, that they would keep progressing for those six months in a steady fashion, which is something to consider. Now, okay, let's say we all accept that these super high volume protocols are only useful for brief periods of time. So maybe in the real world, it would look more like working your way up to 30 sets over the course of a few months, and then deload, and then rinse repeat. The question then is, what is the average volume that you did per muscle group throughout that period, and the concomitant rates of growth? Because we always have to consider the downsides that come from doing very high amounts of volume, such as time investment, increased recovery demands, injury risk. The other thing to consider is, whether doing very high volumes will result in overall bigger growth eventually, or it will just allow you to get faster growth for a period of time. And if so, how much faster will that growth be in the real world? Now, in this study, 45 sets got you almost three times as much growth as nine sets, which you know is crazy. And if you're serious about weight training, it's a no-brainer that it's worth it. You know, 
that can make the difference between you looking like a fitness model next summer as opposed to someone who just kind of lifts. But again, in real life, how would this play out? Because since most probably you can't train like this all the time, then the question is, for how long can you actually train like this? And then when you take into account all the deloading periods you'll have to do afterwards and some of the low volume periods to compensate potentially, where will you end up compared to someone who just trains with a moderate amount of volume year round? So it might be the case that the lower volume phases and the dedicated deload phases you will have to do to compensate for the fatigue costs for those high volume periods will actually have you end up roughly at the same place as you would have had you just done a moderate amount of volume at all times. So let's say you do four weeks at 30 sets, then you deload for a week and you do six sets, then you go back to doing 10 to 15 sets for a few weeks. Maybe over the course of two months, your average volume amount will still come out at like 15 sets per week. So then is it conceivable that if you just did a moderate amount of volume, like 12 to 15 sets throughout that whole period, instead of working your way up to something extreme and then deload, that you could have accomplished the same thing. Now, I would also say, and James Krieger has also spoken of something to this effect, that in the real world, if you're going to do extremely high volume protocols, it will most likely only make sense for certain muscle groups at a time, which are a priority to you or are lagging behind, which is a big topic in and of itself because whether the muscle group you have in mind is actually a lagging point or you just simply need to get bigger all over is a big question which you always need to keep in mind. And I've had this thought process, for example, multiple times in my life when I thought, okay, which muscle groups do I want to really bring up? And then the answer was, well, to be honest, all of them, which pretty much also means that it doesn't make sense to jack up the volume arbitrarily on any one muscle group just for the sake of it. But if you actually have a muscle group that is legitimately warranted to prioritize in some fashion, it might be viable to occasionally do higher volume periods for that muscle group. So while say you're training everything two to three times a week with two to four sets each per session, maybe you pick your biceps and you'll do five sets of bicep work five times a week or something. I think if you isolate one muscle group like that and attack it a bit more with more volume, you're likely to be fine. Now, putting everything together. This study and a few other studies too on the whole, though perhaps not to this extent, indicate that in trained people who have been lifting relatively intelligently for a couple of years, there is benefit to temporarily do extremely high volume protocols. Now, the big question is, what do we actually do with this information? You know, I am still of the opinion that if you're making good progress on a moderate amount of volume, there is no inherent need to raise your volume further. Now, I want to actually justify this because I'm not just saying this as a safe cop-out and I do realize that it can easily be seen as a cop-out. So say you're currently doing 10 sets of work a week and you're seeing yourself getting stronger week to week and you're seeing gradual improvements in your body composition month to month or bi-monthly. I think that if you've been training for a couple of years already, then that's pretty awesome. And you should be pretty ecstatic about your results. Now, I completely understand that there is always a grass is greener mentality. And I'm not saying this disparagingly, because there really is a chance that you could be progressing even faster. And there is value in asking if you could progress even faster. So maybe one way to ease your mind would be to look at your rate of progress and evaluate if it's where it should be. So to quote Eric Helms here, if you're able to make maybe week-to-week -week improvements on your lifts, then you're an early stage intermediate. 
And if you're making progress every four weeks or so, then you're probably an intermediate to late stage intermediate. And then when it takes you even longer than that to make progress, then you're advanced, which makes sense that maybe you can go from benching 80 kilos for eight reps, which would be a pretty reasonable benchmark for someone in the early intermediate to intermediate stage to 82 kilos for eight reps in a week. And then maybe benching 100 kilos for eight reps to 102 kilos for eight reps in a month. That would be pretty reasonable for a late stage intermediate. And then once you can bench 120 kilos for eight reps, then you might need three months to add two kilos to that. And I think that this is where we should probably draw the line and stop with the grass is greener thinking. Why am I saying this? Well, I'm saying this because I understand if it's still tempting to think if you could even push things further to see better progress. Because after all, it's debated how well strength and muscle gains are correlated. So you could think that, okay, in my estimations, I'm an intermediate lifter and I'm able to add five pounds to my lifts every two to four weeks, which is pretty good. But maybe I could do even better if I did a bit more volume, which may actually prevent me from adding those five pounds to the bar because the fatigue I would accrue from all that volume would mask my strength gains a little. But maybe it would actually help with hypertrophy a little. However, I would say that it's best to not fall for this kind of thinking because titrating and training volume and increasing or decreasing our training volume is possibly the factor in our training program that we have the most control over, okay? There are many things we can do, in theory at least, to increase the effectiveness of our training, such as increasing the load on the bar, or sleeping more, or having less stress, which are all great ways to increase the effectiveness of our training. The problem is, is that we have a finite amount of control over these. You could try increasing the load on the bar, but you can only do that so fast. If you didn't get strong enough yet, you won't be able to do that. You can try to sleep more, but if on one night you will have a shitty night of sleep despite going to bed on time and not having consumed stimulants too late, then you got a shitty night of sleep. Nothing you can do. You can try to have a stress-free life, but you know, if something terrible happens unexpectedly and your life flips on its head all of a sudden, well, then you'll have some stress. There is only so much you can do with meditation and positive self-talk to mitigate that. On the other hand, you can always add in another set or two. So it's a factor in your training, which you have almost infinite control over. So it's understandably very enticing to do more sets in the promise of making more gains. The problem is, is that for this very reason, it's also the factor that you can go overboard with the easiest way. And once you've gone overboard, it's then tricky to taper things down because once you pushed yourself over the cliff where you're under-recovered and you're digging yourself into a deeper recovery hole each workout, eventually you'll get to the place where you will have to have a distinct rest phase maybe ahead of time to get all that extra fatigue dissipate. So it's wise to not increase volume too proactively. The other thing that I want to hammer home is that the more you increase your volume, the more you're walking a tightrope in terms of stress and recovery. So let's say that you have a range of training volumes that could be effective for you, and depending on how much you do, you're making progress at different rates. So instead of talking about concrete set numbers, let's say your training volume amounts move on a scale of one to 10. So one would be some number of sets, which is a pretty low amount of volume, and is basically the bare minimum to keep yourself progressing. 
and then 10 is the most amount of volume you can recover from and adapt to. So if you do that, then theoretically, you will make the fastest progress. So that is training volume. On the other hand, you have your recovery, which also moves on a spectrum of, say, 1 to 10. So one would be the worst possible recovery. So say really shitty sleep, really terrible nutrition, not enough protein, high stress, some alcohol. So it's basically, it's barely enough to keep you alive. On the other hand, it could be 10, which is nine hours of high quality sleep, a caloric surplus, nutritious diet, high protein, low stress. Now, if the amount of volume you're doing is one out of 10 from this proverbial scale and your recovery ability is 10 out of 10, then probably you're being needlessly conservative. Like you're holding yourself back to an unnecessary extent and you're just leaving gains on the table for no good reason, really. So, you know, why not bump your volume up to seven, eight or a nine out of 10? Maybe not all the way up to 10 out of 10 to leave yourself some headroom. Now, on the other hand, if your recovery is a six out of 10, but you're trying to hammer yourself with a 10 out of 10 amount of volume because the more volume, the better, then you're not going to make faster gains. In fact, you'll probably make slower gains or no gains at all, as opposed to if you did five out of 10 amount of volume, because you can actually recover from that. Now I can tell you, for example, that my recovery is on average, probably a seven out of 10. I don't have a super high stress lifestyle, but my sleep quality varies. There are some days when my nutrition could be better and it's not consistent either. So some days, my recovery might be a 9 out of 10, and on other days, it might be only 5 out of 10. So this 9 to 12 sets a week, which I found over this past year to be a really nice, sustainable volume amount for me, that is with this 7 out of 10 recovery. Maybe if my recovery was 10 out of 10, in fact, very conceivably, the amount of volume I could benefit from would be a bit higher too, like 15 to 18 sets, maybe even 20 sets a week. And I would also say that even with this 7 out of 10 recovery, maybe I could get away with doing 15 sets a week. But I still choose to only do 9 to 12 because I would rather leave myself some headroom. And this way, you know, maybe I'm underworking compared to my recovery ability on some days. And on some other days, I might be pushing it almost too far. But on the whole, I'm chronically leaving myself an extra 10% headroom so that I'm never pushing myself too far. If I did 15 sets a week, then probably I would feel the bad days a lot more. And on the good days, I would feel like, whew, I just got away with this. And I would rather feel like, man, I could have done a bit more on the good days. And on the bad days, I would rather feel like, mm, this was a bit tough, but definitely something I could handle. And more importantly, and this is perhaps what I want to close with, I have no intentions. In fact, I am not willing to make my recovery a 10 out of 10. I do have the desire to make it an 8 out of 10 as opposed to a 7 out of 10 because I do feel that when I'm well slept, I'm just a different person in terms of my mood, productivity, clarity of thinking, everything. So I do want to have less of the 5 out of 10 days and more of the 9 out of 10 days. And on average, I want to feel like I'm at least an 8 out of 10. But if I arranged my life in a way so that I got nine hours of high quality sleep every day, it would mean that I would not go out, I would see my girlfriend less, I would not take trips to certain places, I would not interview people late in the evening because they live in some random time zone, etc., etc. So it's a matter of priorities. You know, I spoke with the guy in the gym the other day who had a great physique 
And just out of curiosity, I asked him how much volume he was doing. And granted, this guy was on juice, but he said that he's doing like 36 sets a week. And he's doing two a days every day. But then he said, man, my lifestyle is 100% dedicated to this shit. Like sleep, diet, 100% dialed in. I have like 10 meals a day, which by the way, might be a bit of an overkill, but you get the point. That is someone who is willing to dedicate everything to make his training as impactful and effective as possible. I'm not that, and odds are you're not that either. I am not a bodybuilder. You know, last year, um, we went on this music festival with some people I know here, and we went to the lakeside, and when I took off my shirt, one guy was like, damn, man, you work out, huh? And that's when I thought, that's it. Like, that's all I want to accomplish with my training. Not, not that I get recognition from this guy specifically, but so that I look like someone who trains and that it's obvious. But I'm not a physique athlete who is trying to find out what those last 5% tweaks are that I can make to my training to be the best athlete I can be. And for someone like me, it's important to say this out loud every once in a while, simply because... I am consuming some content from some competitive bodybuilders and I consume some of the science content designed for competitive bodybuilders. But it's kind of like reading about the productivity habits of Elon Musk when you're just an everyday warrior who is trying to be more productive at work. And it's like, yes, it's useful to learn from the best, but luckily when it's applied to yourself, the whole thing needs to be divided by two or five because odds are you're not trying to redesign New York City's traffic structure or organize space missions. Now, I would also say that just because you're not a bodybuilder, you can be passionate about training and building the best body you can. And if you're passionate about something, then it's normal to some extent to have a certain degree of grass is greener thinking because what grass is greener thinking is in this instance is basically just wondering whether you're doing the best you can to achieve something that is important to you. So I don't think that you should necessarily feel bad for thinking that way. And I think that if you're thinking this over with a rational mind and say, look, these are the priorities that I have in my life currently. And out of those, these are the ones that could interfere with my body composition goals. And out of those things, this is how much I'm willing to trade off to optimize my training. And if based on that, you conclude after a rational analysis of the situation that, look, this is how much volume I can handle, then that is a very mature adult-like decision. Finally, another really important thing to say is, I think it's easy to fall for the thinking. I know that I have done so many times that, okay, volume is a key driver of hypertrophy, and I seem to benefit from lower volumes, and I seem to get burnt out and get nowhere when I up my volume a lot, but man, if I could somehow make myself respond to those high volumes, then I could make even better progress. And this is just simply backwards thinking. The concept that high volume training is beneficial should only be understood on a per individual basis. High volume on its own, it's not a thing. There is no real objective thing such as high volume. There is only such a thing as high volume for an individual. If the most amount of volume that you can benefit from is 10 sets, let's say, then guess what? 10 sets is high volume for you. It might be low volume for someone else, but to your physiology, it is high. And on top of that, an even more important thing to clarify is that a high volume tolerance does not mean great muscular potential. Okay, so for example, I spoke to Mike Isratel last week. I think we can all agree that he's a pretty massive individual. He also hinted here and there about using some special sports supplements. Guess what he told me his maximum recoverable volume is for his chest? About 10 sets a week. 
And he said that he incurred a, to this day, seemingly irreparable injury to his pecs when he stubbornly tried doing 15 or so sets for his chest because he loves training his pecs and he wanted them to freaking grow faster. So him, the guy behind the MRV, maximum recoverable volume concept, does six to 10 sets of pec work a week. I know many guys that are advanced trainees, natural, very smart about their progression, who are nowhere nearly as big as Mike, who do need to do much higher volumes than 10 sets a week to keep progressing. So the ability to tolerate and benefit from high volumes does not equal a great capacity to progress. And in case you're wondering about Mike in specific even further, I think the highest numbers of volumes he told me were for his side and rear delts, but even those are just up to the mid-20s. Uh, he said that whenever he tried working up to 30 sets, he just kept getting weaker. So if you're doing well on lower volumes, do not be melancholic about it and wish you could do better with higher volumes because it is by no means clear that there is a benefit to being one of those guys. So just use your grass is greener thinking in a moderated fashion. So guys, that would be my giant episode on the recent studies showing benefits to extremely high volumes. I think those of us who were more optimistic about lower volume training can still sleep well after this. To me, this study, for example, is by no means a clear message on the idea that extremely high volumes are just good, period. That explanation is just one out of many possible explanations. And in many regards, we just got richer with a whole bunch of question marks as opposed to final definitive answers. So that would be my conclusion on this one. I hope you enjoy this episode. And with that, see you next time. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode and liked what you heard. And if you did, then I think you definitely love our SSD training and nutritional course that we recently put out with Burge Fagerli. This program not only contains a 12-week phasic training program that you can use to time efficiently and safely build the best body you can, but also gives you four plus hours of video lectures about managing your nutrition and lifestyle to not only look good, but feel and perform optimally. And besides this, you will also be getting some really awesome bonuses like Burge Fagerli's Myo Reps and Zero Carb ebook. So if this sounds interesting to you, then go ahead and check out sustainableselfdevelopment.com slash SSD program. And of course, to not miss out on future episodes like this, subscribe to the podcast and you'll be up to date on everything we'll be putting out. So thank you for hanging around up until now and see you next time.